0: Industrial ecology can be described as the study of material and energy flows through industrial systems. Industrial ecology thinking is beneficial, firstly, for understanding the impacts of industrial systems on the environment, and secondly, for using the principles of ecology to design industrial systems. How might the principles of industrial ecology be used in the context of cities? In other words, how can we better integrate industrial and natural ecosystems to move from linear to circular, closed-loop systems? Hi, and welcome to Episode 3 of Moonshot City. I'm Preeti Ambani and I'm here with Juhi Sharif and together we're exploring the big questions around what makes a resilient and regenerative city.
1: Today we're delighted to welcome our second guest, Dr Michael Lakeman. Kia ora, Michael.
2: Kia ora. it's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me Juhi and Preeti.
1: Dr Michael Lakeman is an industrial ecologist working on how energy and matter flow through the economy and how building connections between disparate players and processes can lead to greater efficiency, resilience, and regenerative outcomes. Currently, Michael is working on two thorny, difficult to decarbonize industries aviation and agriculture. Michael, please tell us a bit more about yourself and your work. Thanks.
2: Yes, yeah, so I have an academic background in ecology, I studied marine microbial ecology. And in my professional life since leaving academia, I have taken the the principles of ecology and used them in the study and design of industrial systems. So for me, industrial ecology is very much um, an example of biomimesis or duplicating or copying the example that nature has set out in biology. You've noticed if you look at any natural system, there's no waste, resources are reused repeatedly, efficiency is maximized. And through the application of industrial ecology, I like to see that we can apply those same principles to how we design and implement industrial systems.
1: So can you explain then a little bit about the relationship between industrial ecology and the circular bioeconomy?
2: Sure. So um, the particular field that I, I focus my work on is the circular bioeconomy, and that's really a subset of the broader field of industrial ecology. So the bioeconomy really consumes itself with the flows of primarily of carbon And embodied energy from uh, photosynthesis, which is the ultimate source of of all biological energy and mass, and how biological or renewable bio based resources can be substituted for fossil based resources, how they can be used more efficiently in the economy, and how the connections, as, as you said, the connections between different processes that use bio-based resources can be made and linked up and strengthened so that we maximize resource use efficiency and minimize waste.
0: Michael, a question I have is how does the industrial ecology or the circular bioeconomy, how are they relevant in our quest to build resilient and regenerative cities?
2: Great question. That's a question I I asked myself when I heard about Moonshot City and talking and thinking about how I could contribute to the dialogue that you're having. And initially I was like, well, you know, I really do focus my work on rural areas. I'm interested in what happens in forests and agricultural areas and cities aren't so much my concern. But of course, they're not separate. They're not separated by any solid wall or firm boundary. And as we've been talking, flows of of matter and energy move into the city and out of the city from adjacent areas. And so there's no boundary. You you could get into arguments of semantics around where the city stops, but there is a a flow between the city core, the suburbs, and then the exurbs and, and rural areas. And it's not just adjacent areas outside the city because of the the power of long-distance transportation through the air and through shipping. And the ports in the city really connect a city to a global network. So with that in mind, then, the bioeconomy, the biological material, largely is generated outside of the city but a huge amount of it comes into the city in terms of the food that we eat, the paper and cardboard that we read and that our goods are packaged in so biomass and embodied energy from biology in the form of food or biofuels that comes into the city and then the city doesn't just build up these stores of carbon that then flows out and the city can you know cities do pass the waste of whatever happens in the city out through those boundaries, out into adjacent outer areas. So you can have landfills, for example, where a lot of the biomass that comes into the city ends up. Or you have, uh, and this is an interesting one, wastewater treatment plants, right? A lot of the food comes into the city, people eat it, it ends up in the sewage eventually. And that goes out to wastewater treatment plants and, and there the boundary or how that matter is transported out of the city is eventually it's flushed out into natural waterways. There's treatment, but it goes out into the natural waterways. So I think the circular bioeconomy is of great relevance to the city because it can provide an opportunity to increase the efficiency of resource use within the city and also increase the resilience of cities. So let me explain those two points and what I'm thinking of there. The resource use in the city, the opportunity there is to take those wastes and not externalise them, put them out in a, into a landfill or or out into the waterways, but reuse the embodied energy and the carbon in those what are to this point wastes and generate other things that the city needs. So, my background and my experience professionally has been in the area of sustainable renewable fuels and both municipal solid waste and sewage waste are fantastic sources of energy and carbon to generate renewable fuels. And if you had that capability in the city, that would enhance the resilience of the city because a city that can generate its own biofuel to fuel the planes and the ships that bring goods and people to the city and send goods and people out of the city is a much more resilient city. So yeah, that's a great example, I think, of how the principles of and practices of a circular bioeconomy actually do have great relevance to cities.
1: So Michael, just to reiterate what you're saying, so we are talking in this podcast series about resilient and regenerative cities. And to me, you're not simply talking about resilience but you are also talking about regeneration so in terms of taking these really valuable rich nutrients and then helping to support that bioeconomy in which the city is based
2: yeah yeah definitely
0: i think you bring up a, another really interesting point as to you know what is the definition of a city where are the boundaries of the city and when we are looking to building resilient regenerative cities, we can't ignore those connections that the city has with its outer layers per se. So those are some some really interesting concepts that you've brought up and how if we look at the bioeconomy and the relationship the city has with the different stakeholders, even though they might be physically outside of city boundaries, that might be one of the fundamental ways or fundamental um, points in the city's journey to becoming more resilient and regenerative. So that's really an interesting concept, in my opinion.
2: Yeah. And just to add to that, I think it's it's interesting that The city also supports the bioeconomy outside the city, not just by being a demand center and buying the products and the goods and the service that the rural bioeconomy provides. But as a center of commerce, the city has the financing capabilities, the political centers of power, in large part, the civil society and general public concentrated in cities. And the support and buy-in and capabilities of those stakeholders are really important for the rural economy too. So it's very, very strong flow, not just of energy and mass, but of ideas and of capital and of goodwill and support and opportunity.
1: So would you say, Mike, that you're optimistic about the future of our cities?
2: Yes, I am. I'm I spent a lot of time thinking about the future and trying to create the future, and I I wouldn't have the strength or the fortitude myself to continue to if I didn't believe that what I'm working towards is achievable and that there is good to be created and a good future to be attained, definitely.
1: Can you talk a bit more about um, some of the challenges then that we face if we want to achieve a circular bioeconomy. So you mentioned the capitalist models. Can you talk a bit more about that?
2: Well, I think one of the biggest levers is in having policy set in such a way that the full cost of goods and services are incorporated into the cost of doing business. So internalising the jargon is internalising externalities. And so, In the examples I've given, the true cost of building a landfill and of powering the trucks that take garbage to the landfill each and every day and the cost of any leaching from those landfills or the cost of the loss of ecosystem services where the landfill has been built, all of the costs, uh, including ecological and social costs, need to be fully accounted for in business models. And so, you know, the way this can happen is price on carbon, carbon tax, price on nitrogen in the waterways, such as is being suggested and actually instituted in certain parts of New Zealand, so that the full cost of nutrient runoff can be calculated into the the cost of goods for the industries that do cause that pollution. So that's a really key step because it allows The And stimulates, incentivizes the connections between the industrial processes that to this point are largely parallel, seeking to maximize their own profits and externalizing their pollution and costs if they can. When they no longer can do that and they have to find a way to reduce the cost of that waste, then that opens up the dialogue to the industrial process that's running parallel to them that is paying someone else to buy that waste or doesn't have a, a source of that waste that they can access for, for their business plan. And so, yeah, the, the policy settings that cause an internalization of those externalities is going to be the number one key enabler for greater integration into an industrial ecosystem that's, that truly is biomimetic, that mimics um, natural biological ecosystems.
0: I just wanted to add there, Michael, to that point you made around how businesses have to internalize the external costs that currently they're not doing, whether that's cleanup or mitigating environmental impacts. I wonder how, you know, as we move towards that step where we are requiring business to internalize those consequences, I see a greater need for technology integration, for businesses to have access to cutting-edge technology, to have access to new ways of doing things. And I see there's a need for greater cooperation between inventors, businesses, technology solution providers and businesses. And how do you see that happening? Do you see that improving? Do you see that businesses have access to best practices, uh, novel practices in this current environment?
2: Yeah, I think that the information is all out there. You know, we're all probably right now sitting in front of a a glowing screen that if we ask the right questions to the internet, we would find those answers. It's all out there. I think it's not a lack of access to the information that could be a constraint. It's the lack of interest in the information or or willingness to collaborate. I definitely see that as a A challenge is one I've noticed in New Zealand is um, actually, I think, holding us back a little is there is a a lack of cooperation, a bit more of a focus on competition or just stick your head down and do your job, you know, working away on your own little thing instead of looking up and looking around and seeing how cooperation and collaboration can lead to better outcomes for everyone. So that is, I think, um, something else that there's room for improvement on for sure.
1: I mean, I'd certainly agree with you, Michael, in terms of the work that I've been doing in the battery space that's involved people having to collaborate from industries that have never really talked to each other before. And so, you know, different sectors like energy and transport and waste, academics, et cetera, all coming together to try to solve a common challenge. But it is relatively new way of working for New Zealand, as far as I can see, because I see that people, as you as you say, have been working a lot in, in isolation. But I do think that there is enormous potential, given the you know, small scale of our population, that there's huge potential for us to actually work together on some of these systemic issues so that our entire country can shift. I mean, it's, it's going to be some hard work, but I do think it's possible. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more to what kind of funding models we'd need to support new solutions.
2: Yeah, great. So this is this is another one of the big challenges. Once you've got the the policy settings right to to account for, for externalities and bring them inside the business models, the next thing that's needed is is the right amounts and access to and the right types of capital to invest in and build out those new businesses, those new industrial sites with many companies working in close proximity to um, maximize resource use and and minimize energy use. And so what's needed? Because a, a lot of these technologies, the type of innovation in business models and technologies that are needed to implement a, a circular bioeconomy. They're quite new in a large part. I mean, there's there's a number of off-the-shelf technologies that you could go and design a cluster of more efficient economic activity, industrial activity. But there is, a, there is a lot of innovative new technologies that need to be brought to market and can only be brought to market when those policy settings are, are, are right. And bringing new technologies, especially new large commodity scale technologies to market can take quite a bit of time and require large amounts of capital. We're talking steel and ground capital. This is not software development where, you know, $10,000 and a six-week incubator can launch a new business. We're talking about multi-year, large-scale industrial facilities. And so you need... Sources of capital that have the patience to support that development, that risky early stage implementation over the the time frame that that takes, and, and that's going to be more than the next quarterly report. It's going to be more than the next annual report. We're talking about multi year, in some cases, decadal um, uh, periods of um, investment before the returns. The 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 um, the economic profits and the social profits and, and returns are flowing back. And so patient capital is key. And that, I think that's, there are good sources of patient capital already existing. And clearly, governments are one that comes to mind. Uh, governments should be taking a long term view of what is good for their constituencies. And there's a lot of work going on in New Zealand and in other places around developing the the investment models for impact that are more patient in terms of when a return will be made back for the upfront investment.
1: I love this idea of patient capital. Um, I mean, it's such an anathema for our modern times and and the short-term thinking that we all see. I mean, my concern would be that these funding mechanisms should, I mean, actually, I think they should sit outside of government and political cycles because particularly here in New Zealand, we have a very short political cycle and, you know, you wouldn't want a change of government to then impact that long-term planning that you need to, to help get some of these projects off the ground.
2: Yeah, that's true. Good point.
1: We were talking a little bit earlier about the importance of public buy-in.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think this really speaks to the, the challenge you also raised, which is this behavior change. And we need to change our corporate culture as well. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to us more about what kind of buy-in is needed?
2: Sure. Yeah, I think... Um... The support of the public is really important because, in the first couple of um, challenges we've just discussed, the, the policy settings and and the patient capital, governments are key providers of each, and governments serve at the you know as long as they keep their public happy, and so uh, we need to be able to lay out a convincing, exciting vision. Of the future of cities, of of circular bioeconomies, of how we live our lives, that convinces the public to support the government as they go about making these changes. And so having the buy in of the broad constituency, and I think it's really important that as the policies and government actions are designed and implemented, that that is kept in mind. When it all comes down to it, we're talking about people talking about people's lives. And if you do put policies in place that force the costs of um, externalities to be included in the cost of goods, that's going to be a financial hardship for people who spend a disproportionate amount of their income or available budget on things like food and like energy. And so a just transition, it has to be, designed in a way that softens that blow so that those, those people's lives are not unfairly impacted, disproportionately impacted. And in fact, could through appropriate policy design, this transition could, in fact, alleviate some of those challenges that people at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum face. And in fact, could provide them opportunities in new economic activity And new ways of doing business and living lives that enhance their lives and also provide the environmental and social benefits of a cleaner, more regenerative, more resilient way of living and doing business.
0: That's another great point, Michael, that you just brought up. The word you used, just transitions. So it's not you know, like we're in a city that's more linear than anything else. And in our journey and transition to a more circular, resilient, regenerative city, we've got to be thinking about that transition piece. How do we soften the blow? How do we enable people to come along on that journey as a city transforms itself? This has been a fantastic conversation, Michael. Thank you so much for your time, for sharing your
1: insights with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been fantastic speaking with you.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Really enjoyed chatting.
1: To learn more, continue the discussion, and see links to the work that Dr. Michael Lakeman is doing, visit us at projectmoonshot.city. I'm Juhi Sharif. I'm Preeti Ambani. This is Moonshot City.